Welcome to The Color of Us. I'm incredibly excited to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Andrew Jolivet. Andrew Jolivet is a former professor and department chair of American Indian Studies at San Francisco State University and an internationally recognized researcher, educator, writer, poet, speaker, sociocultural critic, as well as an expiring chef. He was the former board president for the American Indian Community Center in San Francisco and is the author or editor of eight books, with one being selected as a finalist for best book in LGBTQ studies category for the Lambda Literary Award, as well as many other journals, articles, chapters, reviews, and community studies. He was the Indigenous Peoples Representative at the United Nations Forum on HIV and the Law in 2011, and also the founding editor of the Journal of Louisiana Creole Studies. He served on the board for numerous academic organizations, and outside of these organizations, he is a national speaker who has spoken to thousands of college students, educators, government employees, and private and nonprofit sector organizations over the past decade across the United States, Canada, the Netherlands, and Australia. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Jolivet. I'm looking forward to the conversations we can have today. Uh, hey, Wayo, thank you so much. I'm uh, happy to be here. So to start off, could you just talk a little bit about your identity and how you see yourself in the context of the multiracial community? Sure. Well, I think the first thing I guess I would say is just I grew up in San Francisco, so that's kind of the context. I think any time we're talking about our identity location matters because every place has a different history tied to how we think about identity, how we think about race. Uh, San Francisco was and continues to be, I think, a place where you see lots of multiracial people, mixed race people. Um, I think there can, in those contexts, be more acceptance um, and more visibility. However, it's interesting because I think also in those kinds of places, um, we can get a little bit complacent or assume that um, it's a more racially just society. And so I think that San Francisco has lots of issues. Um, it's still a city that in a lot of ways, when I was growing up was racially segregated. Uh, I grew up in the uh, Bayview Hunters Point district, which was primarily uh, African-American and it has shifted a little bit um, to more um, Chinese American, uh, Latino, uh, and black population, but is you know it's it's being gentrified like much of San Francisco. Uh, for me, growing up, it was always interesting. I I always asked students in classes like, "What's your earliest memory of race?" I think for me, it was going to grammar school. I went to Catholic school my whole life, uh, which is also an interesting context to talk about identity. Um, and I can remember parents or even students asking me questions. Uh, about my dad, oh, uh, is your dad uh, Hispanic or Native American? Um, are, your mom's black, right? Or uh, you're biracial, what's your, and I, it was overwhelming that for a five, six, seven year old kid who's kind of trying to figure those things out. It, it, it uh, sometimes like, I don't know. Um, and as someone who identifies, so my, my mom's African-American with some European ancestry, my dad's Louisiana Creole. Um, which is French, Spanish, Native American, African American, and but mostly yeah, uh, European uh, background. And uh, I think, as 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 someone who's Creole, there's a history, a lot of misunderstanding of what you know Creoles are, and it's different, really, from someone who's like say biracial. 
um, that this is a multi-generational mixing, kind of like most Latinos. Uh, you always say Creoles are kind of like Puerto Ricans and Dominicans um, in terms of the mix um, and history and culture and religious influences. Um, but I, I think that in some ways, because my parents look so different, um, I have a lot of the same experiences as someone who was biracial because people assume that I was biracial or my parents were completely two different races, but I don't think that's how they saw it. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the context of for my early growing up. I would say one thing that's probably important in that story is uh, my grandfather, my, my paternal grandfather, when uh, they moved my father, my grandmother and his siblings from Louisiana in the 1960s, uh, they showed them this film, this old movie from the 50s. Um, it was done even earlier than that, the 1920s. Um, the one in the 50s was with Lana Turner called The Imitation of Life. Um, it's about a famous Hollywood actress and her African-American housekeeper and they come to live with her and her daughter. But the housekeeper's daughter looks like she can quote pass for white. She has a light skinned father is what they say in the film. Anyway, they showed that film. My grandfather showed that to my dad and his siblings and said, we're moving. We're not Creole. We're French Canadians. If you want to be something else, that's your choice. But this is the kind of life you're going to have if you don't, um, you know, basically choose to just be white. Um, so that was also, I think, a big moment where some of my dad's siblings did choose that path. Um, some didn't. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, that's part of my story. Thank you so much for sharing. That brings up a lot of really interesting points. One of them was talking about San Francisco and the unique cultural communities within the region. Oftentimes, racial communities, they often have overlap due to legacies of colonialism and mutual experiences with oppression. Could you talk a little bit about the overlap between racial communities and how this influences culture, language, et cetera? You know, sadly, I think, it, well, there can be benefits. There's so many positives. Unfortunately, I think because we live in a colonial society still, a lot of us sometimes aren't aware of it, like those cultural similarities, like I was just describing. So I think about, like, say, Creoles, right? And uh, Mexican-Americans, you have a very similar tradition around the three kings or the rosca bread that people make the three kings it's the same thing as mardi gras where they have a king cake and you find a baby inside there's these cultural overlaps there's these linguistic overlaps um historical overlaps if you look at new orleans old san juan and havana all of in cuba all of those town squares look the same because of spanish influence in terms of the architecture um and so I think those are some things, but I think if we think more contemporary and I think about San Francisco, um, really, what do most of us want, right? Most people want to have a good life where they have the things that they need to be able to live quality lives, right? Good health care, access to education, um, jobs. Um, San Francisco has become increasingly um, cost prohibitive mm -hmm. for so many people. How can you live there? Um, I think about a decision like the Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 to desegregate schools and how that actually led to the really the resegregation of those schools because you have a lot of white flight out of public schools, including San Francisco. So now you look at San Francisco and it's like over 50% of the public schools are probably Asian, Asian American, um, followed probably by Latino, uh, Latino um, 
with some Caucasian, small African-American numbers are shrinking in San Francisco, I think maybe 4%. I haven't looked at the percentage of the overall population right now. Um, but when you're talking about a 12, 13% US population, but the city has itself like went from six or 8% down to 4% or less, you can see that uh, African-American people are leaving the city. Native American people are not even recognizing their own traditional territory. So I would acknowledge, you know, the Ramatishaloni people of San Francisco. I think, you know, many of their um, descendants are are still here and, and living, breathing people, not in the past. So I think some of the connections that get left out is just kind of looking at what do we have in common? Um, uh, as opposed to always looking at differences, but also that we have, live in a society where it's been set up um, to create divisions across communities. So you have the stop API hate movement that had to happen in the last couple of years because of COVID and some of the things that were coming out of Washington, DC and um, scapegoating um, Chinese and Asian American people um, and, and some Pacific Islanders too being mistaken for Asian American because they're not the same. Um, and so the violence happening to them, but then people saying, oh, it's black people doing it to them or it's Hispanic or Latino people doing it to them, rather than looking at really also what are the root causes of why are there are these historic tensions uh, between communities of color, it's intentional and that's what we have to change. And I think one of the things mixed race studies or I would say critical mixed race studies can really do to shift that is to really think about acceptance right i think one of the things as a mixed person is that we think about well how do i embrace and accept all these different things that at some point society tells me i should be conflicted about we don't have to be we don't need anyone's permission to be who we are right um and so i think in a society that's also steeped in gentrification uh inter uh, racial kind of tensions it's really important that we as my dad used to say you know if people of color are too quick to forget we have to stick together um, and so on this Father's Day, I remember that and, and, and would say that, yes, it's important that um, whether it's San Francisco or Colombia or, you know, New York or Chicago or Atlanta or, or you know, uh, Trinidad, wherever we are in the world, I think it's really important that uh, we do look at those sort of um, convergences. Um, and try to support each other and actually understand. And so, and even where there aren't the convergences, right? We wanna celebrate the fact that we are different. We don't wanna be the same, right? I think it is really unique and important to, to highlight and celebrate the differences. And one of the things that you brought up was how marginalized communities of color are often pitted against each other due to institutional racism and these pre-existing divisors in our society. In what ways can communities of color best support each other while still honoring their own identity? Mm. Sometimes I'm a sociologist, I was trained in sociology, and sometimes we talk about this concept of situational identity, where, you know, in different contexts, I might identify more as a man or a gay man or as uh, African-American or of Hispanic origin or of native uh, ancestry, right? Um, I think that communities of color, it's like kind of like the emergence of the term BIPOC, right? For so long, we, uh, the last, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50 years, even people have been kind of using the term people of color as a catch-all 
And then more recently, people saying we need to recognize that there are differences for people who identify as Black, exactly. um, Indigenous, um, and I would say Black people are Indigenous, so it's even the BIPOC is kind of tricky, right, as people of African descent. And then some are both um, African descent Indigenous and Native American Indigenous, um, so that you have that. Um, but I think that even a term like the like BIPOC, let's just say what we mean. So I think there are moments where we have to, of course, recognize our own experience um, and the different parts of ourselves. Um, and then, but we also um, have to be careful with the catch-all phrases um, because I think that um, it generalizes the experiences, the, the, the diversity of those different experiences that we have. Um, and even the term BIPOC, right? Instead of just saying BIPOC, why don't we just say Black people if that's who we're talking about in that moment? Or if we're talking about Indigenous or Native American or American Indian people, say that in that moment, or Latino people in that moment, or, you know, um, uh, Tongan uh, people in that moment, say that. Um, so I think that we need a lot more specificity sometimes too when we talk about these issues. Um, sometimes even as a professor in higher education uh, and in an ethnic studies department, um, and even formerly in a college of ethnic studies, uh, the first, right, of its kind, I had always blew my mind um, and still blows my mind sometimes that even faculty who do this work have limited exposure, I think, personally, with people from different backgrounds. And so some of the things people say or do or how they interact to me shows just how forceful and powerful white supremacy has been in terms of uh, Hegemony, something we talk about, right, in, in higher ed, uh, the idea that um, people who colonize other people control them either by coercion, force, or by consent, ideological consent, where basically you get them to think like they're oppressors, um, so they adopt their own things. And so I think that's the other thing we have to be aware of when we have, like, to your past prior question, right, is how do we actually understand that we're so much stronger when we're working together as opposed to looking at some other community to say we're going to blame, right? How did trying to blame Asian American people or Chinese people for COVID, which is ridiculous, but yeah. how would, but how, and even if quote unquote it were true, how were that going, how was that going to fix the situation of COVID? It wasn't. So, you know, or during that moment, I can remember actually someone who was attacking people around their identity, a journalist who was attacking Native academics or um, well-known people as pretend Indians, which that it is a real problem of people being imposters um, or um, faking their identities. However, this person was doing this in really culturally inappropriate ways. They were speaking for tribes that they are not a citizen of. Um, they were doing it during COVID though. Another example, like you don't have anything better to do during a global pandemic. I'm over here working with tribes to try to get, you know, PPE and masks and other things to help, you know, protect communities. And you're basically destroying and damaging people by calling out dead people and adopted people saying they're not really Indian. Like that to me in and of itself is, is kind of a disqualifying thing. Um, for someone, you know, if you, if your only goal is, or, you know, I think it's important that we think about what is the goal of the work that we do, whoever we are, whether you're a biologist, a chemist, a person in business, a 
uh, a te uh, elementary teacher, you know, um, a vet, whatever you do, a garbage collector, what is the impact of what it is that we do and how is it, is it helping something or is it hurting, right? And to what degree is it helping and hurting? And, and it's a little more complicated, I think, sometimes when it comes to identity for some of that. But um, ultimately, I, I, I think we all have to be able to look ourselves and our communities in the mirror uh, and feel, feel like we're acting in a way that is with integrity um, and honesty. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Moving on to a different topic, I read that one of your research interests is family sociology. By any chance, could you please discuss the dynamics in interracial families and how this impacts multiracial children? Sure. I mean, I think in interracial families, it's you have people coming together from different cultures, right? You have may have different traditions, um, everything from religion or religious background. Uh, food traditions, um, how you may want to parent, um, you know, uh, just even value systems, right, can be completely different. And so I think some of those intercultural dynamics, it's something that's really important in terms of thinking about relationships, um, not just in family. I mean, I think we could apply it to all relationships really is, do we talk about that then um, before, you know, as we're dating, before we're dating, um, while we're doing it, I think about in single parents too, for that matter, right? I think about people who are adoptive parents. Um, when I was working at a middle school in San Francisco, I remember some of the parents did a great job of really doing kind of the research as uh, one parent, she was Jewish, um, her, her daughters uh, were Guatemalan. I know there's lots of people who have mixed feelings about interracial adoptions or transracial adoptions, I should say. Um, particularly international transracial adoptions. Adoption's a need everywhere. I think that, yes, I can get some of the reasons why, particularly in American Indian, Asian, African-American communities, where there's been, particularly in this country, but globally as well, like a lot of exploitation and abuse when we have um, interracial or transracial adoption. Um, and so I, I can understand that. And it's about not just intention, um, but impact. So I think family dynamics really are about, just like any other, whether you're talking about an interracial family or not, or transracial adopted family or single parent household, it is not just our intention. Like some people, plenty of people have kids. Do they think about whether they want them? Do they, how much preparation is involved in that? And then once you are, you do have kids, or if you're the grandparent raising the, the kids, maybe or an aunt or a cousin or a sibling, right? There's so many ways in which we imagine and think about what is family. So I think that's another thing that mixed race studies as a field can offer us is to think really critically that there's not one, it's not one, it's not either or, it's both and, right? That there are multiple ways to actually understand what it means to be a family. Um, and so for some people, those don't, don't even include blood ties. Um, but I think sometimes the dynamics um, that there are messy ones too, where a parent doesn't understand what it's like for their child who maybe presents as a person of color and they're white and they don't know how to talk about race. So that complicates things. And then maybe the parent of color is, is, is um, you know, doesn't want to be the one that always has to talk about it. Or uh, maybe they're, maybe there's a divorce and they're not actually there, or maybe they're living with a parent of color 
and their kid, you know, looks more white or even doesn't, they just look mixed. So their parent of color doesn't get the experiences that they're having. I mean, there's so many dynamics. So for what I would say in terms of when we think about the sociology of the family, we think about family dynamics, it's so important to communicate, I think, to be honest, um, to not hide things from kids. I think about my own niece as she was growing up and just any question, not just about identity, but don't leave me out. I'm old enough to understand this stuff. Why are you guys not telling me? So young people, even at five years old, know what's going on around them. They can see dynamics. And so I think the parent that I was mentioning, the Jewish mom who adopted the Guatemalan girl, she made sure that her daughters had other Guatemalan families around them. She took them to Guatemala every year. Um, she learned Spanish. So they, you know, they learned Spanish. I think they have a high indigenous background. So she learned about um, uh, some of the indigenous communities there because we can't say for sure which. Um, they, they, they came from, but to really try to make sure that her kids had the access to that. I think that's intention, but then it's also impact, right? Because um, sometimes good intentions means we're assuming what our, our children want mm -hmm. or children assuming what the parents want um, instead of talking about it um, to make sure that that's what people actually want. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that experience with our listeners. Um, to going to the next topic, one of your research interests is gender and sexuality. So I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of including the intersections between gender and sexuality in the longer conversation of mixed race studies. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was seeing this for a while, I would say over the last 10 years, maybe longer, a real increase in the intersection of um, mixed race identity and um LGBTQ um, identity, I think that as our society um, shifts and evolves and um, understands better and accepts better, um, not just mixed race people, but also uh, queer people, transgender people, et cetera, um, what's happening is that young people can be their full selves, right? And so so many more young people who are mixed race are also LGBT, right? And I think the, in some of my work, I think about um, how mixed race identity in some ways has paved a path or roadway or created a genealogy for queer communities as well to kind of look at, right? In terms of these conversations of thinking about multiplicity, right? That even when we talk about queerness or the, or the range of people's experiences in queer communities, it's not singular in the same way that multiracial people don't talk about singular identity, they talk about the most multiplicity. So I think that's what we're seeing in queer communities as well, um, is just because someone might be a gay man or a lesbian woman or a transgender man or a transgender woman, they don't all have the same experience as, all transgender women don't have the same experience, all mixed race, people of African and Filipino descent don't have the same experience. So that's what I mean, right? How do we um, understand that and don't make assumptions, don't make the stereotypes as best as we can. And where st some stereotypes do seem to be carry weight or be real, why are they real and why do they exist? And let's break them down a little bit more, yeah. There's a lot of intersections between um, the mixed race identity and gender and sexuality like you've hit on. But unfortunately, there also tend to be some negatives sometimes with the existing cultures of homophobia in some communities. 
and that presence within the larger context of multiracialism. For people growing up with both identities, how can they best manage that within both communities? I think knowing the genealogy, right, the history of both communities, because some of the other convergences I did mention when we think historically, right, were both illegal, right? It was illegal to marry interracially. It was illegal to marry um, someone of the same sex or gender. Um, and so I think, you know, when you have this convergence of being as someone who had that experience, right, being mixed race, being queer, growing up, people are making fun of you for everything, right, because you never quite fit in. I think we are seeing that shift, but how much are we seeing it shift? Where are we seeing it shift? It's not happening enough because we see in conservative places in the country, um, people fighting, um, fighting and resisting even like ethnic studies curriculum because they don't want people to know this. Why would you not want them to know this, right? The shootings we see in places like Buffalo, um, you know, are a result of not talking about these kinds of issues. The Pulse nightclub shooting, which every Pride Month, this is Pride Month, right? That we remember that shooting where someone went in to kill people just simply for being who they are, who they were born as, um, that they, they are gifts, right? That we have to start understanding that each of us, you know, is actually a gift. We have a purpose for being here. Um, and no one has the right to judge or take anyone else's life or to make fun of anybody else or to judge anyone else. We're also worried all the time. It's like, oh, let's, our bodies, right, is the first place. So I think one of the things I would say is we have to work really hard, I think, for young folks in particular. Schools need to do a better job of this. Families can do a better job of this. Healthcare facilities to reimagine how we think about the body, the human body, and what is healthy, but also, and also not just that, um, that the standards sometimes we're applying, that they're actually very racist, right? And or transphobic or homophobic in terms of what we're saying that people can and can't do with their bodies or what they should look like or what they should wear, um, or that you're too big or you're too skinny or your teeth are this way. Like, why do we do, what, what is the goal? What is the purpose of that? What is the purpose of it? And so I think that's hard to say, like, that's nice. It sounds pretty what I'm saying. Um, I think this speaks to structural societal problems. We have to change and reimagine the way that we even teach, period, um, in this country, the way that we imagine family. When I visited Cuba uh, in 2013, they were talking about one project there, um, uh, masculinos alternativos, uh, alternative masculinities, and how they're reimagining fatherhood outside of the context of the ways in which they had been raised, right, in a very patriarchal, Catholic, you know, homophobic society. What does manhood look like? What, was, what does an alternative masculinity and fatherhood look like? Um, so I think the earlier we can do that, actually, despite the people out there who are saying, oh, no, you're destroying my kids. And you no, actually, you're damaging your kids. The people who stop kids from talking about hard things are not preparing them for adulthood. Right. And if we also change the way in which society engages these issues, maybe adulthood also won't be as tough. Right. Um, and all of this stuff I'm saying is, again, not to oversimplify, I think it's also, we live in a capitalist society. So we have to think about who has access, access um, to resources that they need to make the kind of choices and to live the kind of life that they want to. If you can't live, if, you, if you're going home and you're hungry, um, you don't have enough to eat. And then on top of that, you're being bullied. 
um, uh, or being teased for your race or your sexual orientation, that all becomes all the more complicated. You're like, I don't even want to think about sexual orientation or uh, racial identity. I just want to be able to eat, <laughs> right? So I can, um, so, so I think we have to do a better job of taking care of everyone. And if we start from a place of those who are most marginalized in our society of centering their experience and their needs, that way we ensure that no one um, goes hungry, but that way we also change the narrative where bullying is not acceptable, where teasing and then later more structural violent forms. I mean, that's all structural and violent too. I think the ones that we see as adults that are so like maybe um, in your face that those don't that those aren't acceptable, that they're never acceptable. Right. It's so wonderful to hear about that program that you shared that's talking about traditional views on masculinity in school systems. It's really important to have those kind of conversations. And unfortunately, whether it be race, sexuality, et cetera, they're often not included in school settings. Kind of as a side note, um, one of the things I noticed in my home state of Arizona is there's no literature in the current school systems that have mixed race protagonists. So unfortunately, that's just something that children aren't going to be exposed to growing up. So recently I sent out a petition to try to get that to change to the Arizona Board of Education. So for all of our listeners, go sign the petition. Um, but yeah, it's really important that education starts at a young age and that children are exposed to these kind of topics. As a final question, at The Color of Us, the mission is to raise awareness, foster conversation and connection, and elevate the voices of multiracial, multicultural youth. As we conclude the conversation for today, is there any advice that you would offer my generation of multiracial youth? My advice to your generation and the generations that are gonna come after of multiracial youth is listen to yourself, <laughs> trust yourself, um, fight like hell when you have to and you need to and maybe that's maybe you're not the outspoken one maybe you want you do that and it's an internal conversation maybe it's the one-on-one -on -one conversation when I say fight like hell um, and ultimately I think what I would say to the generations coming and this is love yourself really I mean really love yourself honor yourself know that you are here for a purpose, regardless of what family may say to you, no matter what society or strangers may say to you or looking at your eyes or your hair texture, your skin color, your body shape, whether you speak this language or not, that you don't need to prove your authenticity to anyone. You are as one, you are 100%, as Paula Gunn Allen would say, a native uh, literary uh, Laguna Pueblo uh, Lebanese scholar, um, would always say you're all in all right you're not part you're all in all and i think in that all in all um in that sacredness that you carry as as, as a human being you also then have a responsibility to pay it forward so please um you're paying it forward right now so thank you for this podcast and uh, this work you're doing with the color of us and 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 that for all your listeners that that you are making a daily difference even it doesn't have to be for a whole bunch of people start with yourself. And if you're happy, that's one more person who's happy and healthy and um, living a good life. And that's what we should all be striving for. Thank you so, so much for your time today and for sharing that incredibly inspiring last piece. 
Um, it was so wonderful to be able to talk to you and I'm really grateful to have had this conversation.